Are you looking to become a leader in clean energy and an expert in clean tech? Do you hope to get noticed in the crowd as you pursue a career in this fastly growing industry? You are in the right place. Join Karan Takar as he invites clean energy leaders to share industry developments, highlight clean tech investment opportunities, and shed light on how you can increase your chances of employment in this high-growth sector. We will also discuss the energy transition across key emerging markets like India and explore partnership opportunities for the U.S. private and public sector. After all, this is the Zenergy Podcast. Thank you, Mr. Koppel, sincerely for taking the time. I've been really looking forward to speaking with you. And it was great to run into you and connect with you at the Global Clean Energy Action Forum in Pittsburgh. And for listeners who may be unfamiliar with your work and also what the International Energy Agency is, can you provide a brief introduction of the IEA and what your role is at the firm? Sure. And it's a great privilege to participate in this podcast, Mr. Taka. We met each other, as you mentioned, in Pittsburgh, and we had a very interesting conversation on the youth voice in these climate talks and also climate negotiations. The International Energy Agency is an agency that was established in the early 1970s. It came in the wake of the first oil crisis, where supply from the Middle East was drastically reduced, and this led to to very high energy prices and also raised awareness and a call for action to be better prepared for disruptions to critical supplies such as oil. It also acted as a body that provided greater information and transparency on oil market developments, but also other energy market developments. It is a government intergovernmental agency, so our main stakeholders are governments, but the IEA over the past 50 years has certainly transformed itself quite radically in this period since the early 1970s. Today, the issues that confront energy markets are obviously the current energy crisis that we're in, which is not just impacting on oil markets, it's impacting on all energy markets. So it is perhaps more clearly the most significant oil crisis that we've had and truly global crisis that we've had. But of course, there are issues over climate change, the role that the combustion of traditional fuels contributes to to climate change, and the need to transition our energy systems to renewable sources or clean sources of of energy. And this is very much front and centre of the work of the IEA. It features in many of our publications, obviously most recently in the World Energy Outlook, which came out a few weeks ago. It sets out scenarios for the future, including how, under current policies, we would see climate change bearing on the global energy system if those policies were the only policies to be implemented. But it also sets forth a roadmap on how one could achieve a climate goal, such as the one and a half degree warming target that got greater currency during the COP Paris Agreement back in 2015. So traditional focus, observing energy markets, still very much there, but a broader scope. We look at all technologies and we look at all fuels. 
current situation of the energy crisis, the nexus between energy markets and climate change, and the third area, and very much an evolving role from the role back in the 1970s, energy security issues. They were typically focused on oil markets. Now, energy security issues tend to be uh, looking at the implications of the interruption of supply of natural gas. But we're also conscious that as our energy systems transform themselves towards renewables, there are other critical inputs that if they were to be disrupted, could be an issue for energy security. Uh, Here I have in mind some of the critical components that go into wind turbines, that go into electric vehicle batteries, cobalt, for example, lithium. Some of these products are actually more concentrated in their supply than traditional fuels. So we're very conscious that we are prepared for the consequences that could arise from a disruption of supply and how to minimise that risk going forward. We don't want to be in a situation where we replace one source of energy insecurity with another source of energy insecurity. Now, the second part of your question related to the role that I play at the International Energy Agency. So I'm the head of the Energy Investment Unit. This is a unit that's a little different from other parts of the IEA, which typically follow energy flows. The Energy Investment Unit follows capital flows. And we do this across all fuels and across all geographies that allows us to build up from the bottom a picture of the overall developments and trends in energy investment. And this allows us to look at questions in terms of the speed at which we're changing our energy system to be able to accept a greater proportion of renewable energy and then also allow are faced down in those areas of the energy system that rely on traditional fuels. So we get a sense of how far are we on track to meeting some of these climate goals and to understand the nature of those capital flows. Are they evenly distributed? Do they tend to be concentrated in particular geographic areas? And what types of renewables are gaining prominence in terms of scale of investments? All these sorts of questions are part of the unit's roles and responsibilities. And then the other side of it is looking at the financing side of that investment. What is the access to to finance? What are the costs of accessing finance for for renewable energy? Um, That's one side of the financing side. We also look at the, the broad ecosystem of ESG investing and other initiatives that seek to improve the Greek credentials, if you like, of investing in renewable energy technologies. So that's some of the roles that the Energy Investment Unit is involved with. Amazing. Thank you so much for expanding on that. And I have so many questions that I'd love to hear your perspective on. You mentioned how the IEA was started during a time where you know there was conflict and there's really tight oil supply, which caused a global energy crisis, which we're similarly, you know, witnessing today. I was reading the IEA World Energy Outlook, which for the first time ever, it predicts that based on today's prevailing policy settings, global demand for every fossil fuel will exhibit a peak or plateau. For example, with coal use falling back in the next few years, natural gas reaching a plateau by the end of the decade, 
and oil demand leveling off in the mid-2030s. I'd love to hear your perspective on what you feel are driving these expected demand impacts. Is it primarily because investors not foreseeing long-term returns in these energy sources? I think there are at least two broad factors that drive this development. The first relates to policies that are deliberately put in place to leverage and accelerate the pace of transition towards renewable energy systems. So here we have in mind, for example, the Inflation Reduction Act. This is a very large fiscal contribution to support the uptake of renewable energy technologies, but also to support the development and testing of some of the more uh, innovative technologies that have yet to reach market, but have good prospects for reaching market. So a very substantial contribution there. But we see similar policies playing a role in other markets. In Europe, the Fit for 55 program is one that supports the deployment of renewable energy technologies also. In India, there is a very substantial uplift in solar PV power generation. This has been given support, added support through the policies that have been put in place. And we see similar things in Japan, in China, and in other regions across the world. So policies are providing some of the support that is needed to have the confidence and provide the impetus to invest in these new sources of clean energy. That's one of the driving factors. A second driving factor, I would argue, are the market fundamentals. We've seen a very rapid increase in natural gas prices in particular, but it's affected other fossil fuels, including oil and coal. And these have come off some of their earlier peaks, but they still remain at a high level. Even putting those aside, some of the costs now associated with uh, well-tested uh, renewable technologies like solar and wind are competitive vis-a-vis -vis these traditional fossil fuels, even before the, the price increases that we've seen in the first half of this year. Now, we have seen also price pressures in some of the costs of building the renewable energy supplies in solar, for example, and also in wind. Some of those critical inputs have experienced quite rapid increases in prices, and that acts to dilute the impact of each dollar of capital expenditure. But the degree to which this has occurred is less so than it has been for fossil fuel-based sources of power generation, for example. And I think there's also a greater recognition of some of the benefits that can be had from renewable energy in terms of additional jobs. There are more jobs now in renewable energy than there are in the traditional fuel sector. And with the growth that is needed to support that transition, to meet climate goals, for example, there are prospects there that also make it an interesting strategy in terms of developing some of the industries to support this energy transition. Now, one thing that we're observing, which is a bit of a caveat to this, is that these forces are particularly dominant in some of the advanced economies, including China, and that's where we're seeing the bulk of the investment, the investment in emerging market and developing economies. Some of those, it's basically being stuck at close to the levels that we saw back in 2015 when the Paris Agreement was signed. 
So there's still very much a need to mobilise those sources of finance to support that global effort to mitigate carbon emissions. Understood. I'd love to hear your perspective on another statistic that was reflected in the World Energy Outlook, which expressed that the policies, many of which you mentioned, the Inflation Reduction Act, among others, will help propel global clean energy investment or are expected to help propel investment to around USD $2 trillion a year by 2030, which is a rise of more than 50% from today, as stated in the outlook. However, the outlook also stated that to reach net zero emissions by 2050, these investment levels are not necessarily sufficient. And instead of $2 trillion, need to get to $4 trillion by 2030, highlighting the need to attract new investors into the space. Can you provide some insight into these numbers, particularly focusing on what you feel will help propel more investments into the space to ultimately get to those net zero investment levels? Sure. And maybe the point to make here is to kick off from the last part of your question which is really to get an understanding of why we see this difference in the level of clean energy investment in in different markets. So you've mentioned at the beginning of the role that policies played, and um, they they are very important. But we still see this large gap between uh, many of the emerging market and developing economies with the advanced economies. Um, And here, one of the biggest obstacles to deployment relates to the cost of financing clean energy investments, or more broadly speaking, finance investments. And and this relates to both uh, risks and also perceived risks of investing in particular markets and in particular projects. In work we've done at the IEA, we've estimated that the cost of capital for a renewable energy project in an emerging market economy can be between two and three times higher than it is in a typical advanced economy. Uh, And that's very significant because the the capital expenditure costs for solar and wind, for example, are relatively significant in the overall costs. So once the facility is built, the actual operating costs are, are relatively modest. And so a larger cost of capital can act as a significant break on those sorts of investments. Now, why is it that the cost of capital is higher. And in some cases, it's many more times than two to three times higher than an advanced economy. And here, one really needs to get a deep understanding of some of the risks that are associated with the project. So there are traditional macroeconomic risks associated with foreign exchange movements, the ability to, if it's a foreign investment, to repatriate and transfer currency without restrictions that can lead to risks of capital losses, But there are a whole bundle of risks associated with the project itself. Uh, There's technology risk. There are risks associated with liquidity. And they get to issues associated with contracting issues to to assure a guaranteed level of demand. There are regulatory risks in terms of getting access to land, permitting times. Whatever the risks are, they will manifest themselves in terms of a risk premium and they can add up to make that cost of capital higher from one market and from one project type to another project type. We've done some calculations just to illustrate how significant those high costs of capital can be. And if you take, for example, 
a scenario where one were to assume, for instance, that the cost of capital was 200 basis points lower than it actually is, two full percentage points, in a net zero emission scenario, that could translate into lowering the overall financing costs to reach net zero emissions globally by the order of $15 trillion. So that's a very significant sum of money. It's a very significant potential gain that can be realised by making sometimes policy changes, sometimes regulatory changes that still meet their intended goals, but do so in a way that uh, limits those risks and then acts to put downward pressure on the cost of capital. So there's a lot of work to be done in this particular field. It's certainly one of the most prospective areas for, for mobilising additional capital in clean energy transitions. Understood. And yeah, thankfully, you all launched the Cost of Capital Observatory at the Global Clean Energy Action Forum to help figure out ways to drive more investment into these emerging economies. Are there any specific policies that you feel would be helpful as it pertains to helping to facilitate more investment into clean energy projects in these emerging markets? Well, I think one needs to look at this issue on a country-by-country basis, and also it's quite specific to the technology or the or the project type. I think we need to move beyond the generalities and get a deeper understanding of the specific source of risk, what's its likely impact, and to what extent can it be reduced. This is really where the Cost of Capital Observatory can come into play. It's a tool. It's not just a set of data. Uh, that's very important. It provides transparency on the cost of capital, which is often not there. But we have a methodology that can be used to, to provide that sort of diagnostic in taking into consideration the specific circumstances in an individual market, given their uh, energy needs, uh, given some of the geographic constraints, for example. That then can translate into a very concrete and uh, specific roadmap for ways in which those risks can be reduced and those potential gains that I mentioned can be realised and provide that degree of acceleration that is needed to meet some of these scenarios, such as the net zero emission scenario, which is a very challenging scenario to achieve, but is one which is feasible, provided there are changes um, that support a lower cost of capital, for example, but also the policy changes and the ability to then be able to mobilise finance from other sources, for international sources of finance, maybe through the multilateral development banks, uh, maybe forms of blended finance. There are plenty of uh, bankable projects, um, but often making that match between the project and the financing of the project is where many of these opportunities sort of start to not be realised because of different perceptions and also the way in which the information flows through. So addressing some of those areas of concern is really important to be able to tap that potential gain. That makes a lot of sense. And thank you so much for your time. My final question is more on the personal slash zooming out of work a little bit level. And as you know, there are a lot of young people who will be listening to this episode. And given that you've achieved so much success in this space, as you reflect back on your career journey, any piece of advice that you'd give 
let's say like your younger self, maybe in the 20 to 25 year age range as you're, you know, trying to figure out what you want to do? Well, one thing that always um, is front of mind, uh, particularly now that I've recently returned to the International Energy Agency, is the experience I had at the very beginning of my career, which is the, the move that brought me from Australia to, to Paris uh, to work at the International Energy Agency. Uh, it was a program for trainees, a stagiaire program at the OECD slash IEA, one family organisation. And I had been initially a graduate in the Commonwealth Treasury, the Ministry of Finance in Australia, and I'd been working on the economic outlook, so doing forecasting and, and modelling work. And I had been selected for this program at, uh, at the OECD slash IEA. And I thought that my role would probably be in the area of this organisation that is close to the work that a Treasury Department or a Finance Department does. But it actually meant that I was appointed or assigned to work at the International Energy Agency in their area of modelling, which was sort of the energy outlook. And I thought initially, well, this isn't very satisfactory. I don't have much background here. It would be better to be in an area where I had some experience. And the, the reason that they saw me as a fit for the International Energy Agency is that I'd been using some of the software that the IEA was using at the time. And so I would be able to make that transition fairly quickly. And I still thought before arriving that this was still not really what I wanted. But when I got there, the situation was very, very different. There was so much to learn. It was a sort of different types of data sets, completely different sorts of issues, different modelling requirements and skills that are needed. And it was right at the beginning of the awareness of the link between burning fossil fuels and climate change following the Brundtland report so many, many years ago. And what I took from that is that often uh, you can have a plan, but if that plan takes deviations for reasons that are beyond your control, don't try and push back. See it as an opportunity. There will always be things that you will learn. There will always be an opportunity to try and steer your career along a broad plan, but I wouldn't try and set the parameters of your career path such that it doesn't allow for any of these deviations or interesting branches in a road. It may well be that you steer off into a completely different direction from what you initially envisaged. And I think not much has changed. Speaking to many others that are a generation above me, I hear similar sorts of stories. So I think there must be something, there must be something in that. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mr. Koppel, for your time. Really appreciate it. Okay, then. Cheers. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Check out the episode description or show notes for more information on our guest. See you next time.